The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines today, my special guest is Professor Halil Yanagin. We'll be discussing the situation in the Middle East, uh, multiple conflicts that are happening, and Turkey's role in stirring them up. So stay tuned. Here are some headlines from this morning and over the weekend. The number of unaccompanied children in border patrol custody has ballooned this month. President Joe Biden's team is racing to find more places to house them, leaving thousands of children stuck in jail-like facilities for longer than 72 hours allowed under the law. But the process of scoring government sites for adequate shelters was taking too long for Biden, who is now staring down a problem threatening to spiral out of control. From its earliest weeks in office, the Biden administration has been playing catch-up, scrambling to stem a growing immigration crisis on the U.S. southern border, where there are now more than 14,000 unaccompanied children in U.S. custody, officials said on Thursday. On Thursday, the House passed two immigration bills, one to provide a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants known as DREAMers, and the other one to provide legal status for farm workers, though they are expected to hit a wall in the Senate. The bills are a sign of tough slog ahead for Congress to address immigration reform and the problems at the border. California Congresswoman Young Kim and Congresswoman Michelle Steele joined other Asian American lawmakers as witnesses in a House Judiciary Committee hearing last week intended to put the spotlight on discrimination, which took on a more urgency in the wake of the mass shooting of Asian Americans in Atlanta earlier in the week. Kim and Steele are the first Republican Korean American women to ever serve in Congress, sworn in along with history-making Representative Marilyn Strickland of Washington State, a Democrat of Korean descent in January. President Joe Biden has joined European leaders in condemning Turkey's withdrawal from landmark international accord designed to protect women from violence. Turkish President Erdogan issued a decree early on Saturday annulling Turkey's ratification of the Istanbul Convention, a landmark European treaty protecting women from violence that it was the first country to sign 10 years ago and bears the name of its largest city. The convention requires governments to adopt legislation prosecuting domestic violence and similar abuse as well as marital rape and female genital mutilation. President Biden called the move deeply disappointing, saying it was a step backward in efforts to end violence against women. Even as Los Angeles County sees COVID-19 vaccinations ramp up and cases uh, decline, younger residents are still driving the majority of daily coronavirus infections, officials said Saturday. Of Saturday's 521 newly recorded cases, more than 70% are among young people younger than 50. But of 56 whose deaths were reported on Saturday, 93% 
of them were older than 50, according to LA County Department of Public Health. Since the coronavirus first arrived in the county, it has claimed the lives of 22,777 residents and infected 1,213,780 people. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about solidarity and lack thereof uh, sometimes. It stems from the recent shooting in Atlanta where uh, Asian Americans were targeted. It makes me think about so many other events and tragedies that have happened just in the last couple of years to different groups, whether it be uh, the black American community and the anti-black racism that exists um, the shooting of, of multiple people uh, and killing of, of black Americans by law enforcement, the police brutality, as well as um, last year's um, attack on uh, Armenians of Artsakh and what the Armenian American community went through witnessing that. Uh, there have been violence against uh, the LGBTQ community, uh, even more so from the LGBTQ community, the the trans community, and especially trans women of color, uh, and of course Latinos, all the discrimination and all the targeting of Latinos by our former President Trump, uh, and everything that they've had to go through, and so on and so forth. I mean, this list goes on. There have been uh, anti-Semitic attacks uh, in synagogues and all over the U.S., uh, targeting of uh, Jewish Americans, so this happens to pretty much every group all of the time. And the question is, what do we do about it? Now, being an Armenian American uh, and also a, a gay American, when something like this happens that hits close to home to me, sometimes I'm surprised at what could be perceived as apathy by people. When uh, Armenians of Artsakh were attacked by Azerbaijan and Turkey this past September, and I was um, posting about it all over social media, I was talking about it, I was writing about it, reporting about it, I was surprised uh, that so many people didn't say a word. They would not comment on my posts, my articles, or anything like that, and it just seemed a little lonely to be honest. So I want to take this opportunity and say, you know, what are we doing uh, about how Asian Americans are feeling post this huge tragedy, this attack that happened in Atlanta, which was not the first, we know that. Asian Americans have been targeted heavily in the last year, a lot of it having to do with how Trump blamed coronavirus on China, and of course, a lot of people sort of group everyone together. It's like, you know, all Asian people are sort of the same kind of a stereotype that they do. So, I mean, I know a good friend of mine was uh, targeted because she's uh, American of Asian descent. But what do we really do? Do we stand in solidarity with other groups that are marginalized, that are discriminated, or do we just say, well, it doesn't affect me, so I'm just going to go along my day? you know? And I have to even sort of look at myself and say, well, what am I doing to make sure that 
my Asian friends and, and acquaintances and colleagues know that I'm there for them if they need me. And to make them feel comfortable, sometimes people just want to sort of just, they just want to know that you're aware and you have their back and that's enough. So I really want to be, I guess what I'm being blunt about is let's not wait until something happens to our group to, to stand up for it, you know, and, and really show solidarity no matter which group is targeted because, you know, one day it's the Asians, next day it's Latinos, one day it's the Armenians, next day it's the Jews, one day it's uh, LGBTQ, next day it's um, the elderly for ageism, or it could be people who have disabilities. So, you know, it goes on and on. So we can, we can do a few things for this. You know, we, you know, we have to think about how are we addressing anti-Asian rhetoric uh, and the things that we hear in the media or read or whatnot. How knowledgeable are we about Asian American history, really? The, con- the contributions of Asians uh, to America, uh, you know, not just recently, but, you know, prior to uh, the 20th century. You know, are we, are we acknowledging the fears and validating the concerns of uh, Asian Americans and what they're experiencing right now proactively? And not just waiting for them to say something, but are we doing anything proactively to really acknowledge that? You know, and there's other things obviously we can do. You know, we, there can be intersectionality of all marginalized people, or maybe not even marginalized people, just people who are concerned and allies in, in dealing with things like this. Because unfortunately, we know that this is not, you know, the last time it's going to happen again. But we have to recognize that we are interconnected and, and really stand together and not wait for something tragic to happen in our backyard uh, to, quote unquote, our people to uh, stand firmly um, uh, and say, you know, this is not okay and we're going to, you know, we're going to stand for this and we'll be in solidarity with our uh, Asian American friends and family and colleagues and, uh, you know, just anyone. And on a, on a more personal basis, just really show and express our concern and, and care and say, I'm there for you. So anyways, I'm just being blunt about, you know, this, this sometimes lack of solidarity that we have uh, for other people, and yet when it happens to us, we may expect people to stand in solidarity with us. So it goes both ways, and we have to acknowledge that. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Professor Halil Yanigan is from Istanbul, Turkey. He received his PhD from the University of Virginia's political theory program. While living in Turkey after his PhD, he was dismissed from his assistant professor position at Istanbul Commerce University during the mass academic purges that started in January of 2016 after signing the peace petition by the Academics for Peace. Thereafter, he worked as a postdoctoral scholar at a Transregional Studies Forum in Berlin and Stanford University's Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies. 
Since then, he's taught at Stanford, UC Berkeley, and San Jose State Universities as a lecturer. Professor Yenigin has published and given lectures at several universities in Turkey, the U.S., and Germany, as well as occasional interviews to several media sources on Muslim political thought, Islamism, peace activism, American and Middle East politics, and Turkish democracy. He currently lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. Good morning, Hal. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much. Good morning to you, too. Well, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, been looking forward to getting your take on all that's happening uh, you know, throughout the world, the U.S., uh, lots happening even uh, post-Trump uh, time. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So I'm going to sort of go right in. And first question I'm going to ask you is kind of general. <laughs> what is your perspective on what's happening uh, since you are, you know, you're very astute with Middle Eastern politics and and such? What's happening in the Middle East right now? Give me some highlights. Yeah, a lot is, of course, happening in the Middle East. Uh, there are some, of course, uh, recent uh, developments with uh, Turkey's approach to Egypt. Uh, Turkey is trying to make some overtures to Egyptian uh, government, which it has always considered as a coup government and uh, refused to have any kind of contact. And Turkey has been, as you know, harboring uh, the Muslim Brotherhood leadership in Istanbul. And uh, Istanbul has turned into a hub for uh, global uh, Islamist, actually, intelligentsia. So uh, despite all that, uh, now Turkey is trying to um, control uh, the Muslim Brotherhood leadership in Istanbul and make those gestures. And on the other hand, uh, of course, uh, lately we have had uh, as a direct result of Turkish expansionism, um, some uh, unfortunate developments, a war uh, in uh, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, and uh, there are also some other, uh, of course, developments uh, as far as uh, the Saudi, uh, Qatari, and UAE uh, conflicts are concerned. So uh, we can probably, you know, like elaborate on uh, any of those with your question. Yeah. Questions. So let's start with Egypt. Okay. I I don't quite understand why Turkey, Egypt being on a completely different continent, what is Turkey doing in Egypt and also Libya as well? What's the what's the end game? What's the objective? Yeah, for Erdogan, uh, the end game is uh, generally uh, almost always his own political survival, and for that he needs alliances. He needs alliances internally and externally. And uh, with post-Trump era, so Erdogan is, of course, uh, had to uh, reshuffle like the whole game, uh, his, his own game, uh, because he knows he's not uh, in the best comfortable position as he used to be uh, during Trump era. Right, uh, because Trump uh, had his back for whatever he did. Uh, this includes what he did in Azerbaijan, Armenia, what he did uh, in northern Syria with Kurdistan, and so on and so forth, and even like Libya, what he did there. Uh, but now, uh, as uh, you can imagine, 
he needs to uh, rethink certain uh, alliances. And uh, the best thing Erdogan has done so far during his 20-year, almost 20-year tenure, uh, is bringing the ship and always trying to like shift or being able to shift his positions, like uh, to take just the opposite positions in a very capable way. And uh, he's done that many times, and he's doing that again. As for what Turkey is doing uh, in Egypt, Turkey has always had a certain position in Egypt. And uh, after the Arab Spring, uh, this has become even more significant. Uh, and uh, Turkey took uh, some strong positions and also moralized its own position uh, to uh, pretend that, you know, Tur- Erdogan is always, you know, uh, always uh, opposing coups, uh, no matter, you know, what he did with the coup government, you know, 20, 30-year-old coup government in Sudan, even though, like, he he's had some nice relations, cozy relations with other coup governments, he still tried to uh, pose himself as defender of uh, the victims of coups uh, around the world. Uh, but, you know, at this point, looks like uh, Erdogan needs... Uh, Egypt's friendship and not animosity. Uh, so to, to be like, especially after uh, Saudis and Qataris, uh, they kind of reconciled their differences to a certain extent. Uh, so in this new era, post-Biden or post-reconciliation between Qatar and Saudis, mm-hmm. uh, Erdogan, I guess, uh, needs uh, Egypt's friendship and not animosity. Yeah, I read somewhere <clears throat> yesterday... I forget what the specifics were that certain Turkish owned something that happened in United Arab Emirates um, that had to do with Turkey. They shut down some of the offices. Um, I have to look this up again, but it doesn't look like it's going anywhere good. The relationship between Arab world and uh, Erdogan. Yeah, it is complicated. Uh, so the Arab world, you know, like, of course, liked uh, the Turkish uh, approach to uh, the Arab world, like in the early 2010s, uh, until uh, the Arab Spring, uh, to be honest. With the Arab Spring, the record got complicated. On the Arab Street, um, Turkish uh, approaches to the Arab Street was well received uh, because Turkey had uh, a quasi-Western culture, although like a Muslim-majority country, um, and uh, the soap operas, Turkish soap operas, the romantic soap operas, they were all good. And Turkey did not really uh, try to show itself as Ottoman expansionist country. However, uh, after the Arab Spring, uh, Turkey started taking strong positions uh, in many different places and unnecessarily getting involved in inter-Arab politics and always supporting uh, the Muslim Brotherhood isolated groups in the Arab world, which means uh, a very specific point of view, of course, and this is at the expense of other groups in the Arab world. And this was not a good policy, uh, at the, to say the least. Uh, it wasn't a very wise policy because it was alienating all those non-Muslim Brotherhood uh, members of the society, of Arab societies. Um, but Turkey took that risk, and this has to do with as well like some of the uh, circles that were close to Erdogan, uh, which you know like lobbied for these Islamist groups, uh, 
uh, to gain Erdogan's favor. Um, and this became like even more significant after the coup in Egypt uh, in 2013. Uh, and it went, you know, like well for Erdogan for, for some time. And it is still um, uh, more or less the same way that Erdogan sees himself uh, as the leader of the Muslim world. And that Muslim meaning generally uh, those Muslims who are supporting the Islamist goals. Um, and even though we cannot say, really say, you know, he's pretending to be the caliph, like the new caliphate, uh, still this uh, definitely speaks for a certain very deliberate bit for global Muslim leadership. And uh, in the Arab world, of course, especially among uh, Saudis and uh, UAE, uh, that did not, uh, that did not, you know, like, uh, that were not received well. Uh, because the UAE doesn't want uh, this kind of Turkish involvement in their own internal affairs, in the intra-Arab affairs. Uh, and they see this as definitely now like the neo-Ottomanism, uh, which is, uh, by the way, a clear characterization. It is not uh, so off. The way you're explaining some of Erdogan's sort of expansionist and some of his fantastical notions of being a leader and such, you would think that then Turkey would have better relations with Iran, but it does not, correct? Turkey is doing uh, some form of fine-tuning with Iran. Uh, so it is not as against Iran as it is against, for instance, UAE. Um, so Turkey and Iran, uh, of course, they have had uh, ups and downs. And uh, especially during the uh, high time of uh, Syrian civil war, they had worse relations. But at this point... Uh, you can't uh, exactly say, you know, they can't find ways to ally themselves with each other. And especially when it comes to uh, issues like the Kurdish issue, you would always see them as good allies. Right. And also, uh, like evading, for instance, uh, American sanctions. Uh, in that sense, Turkey has always, you know, like uh, taken advantage of the situation there, uh, either uh, through some, like, uh, open ways uh, that uh, allowed ways to, to have some kind of trade relations, and also as uh, we know from the Reza uh, Zagab case that was seen in uh, in New York, uh, uh, where Erdogan's you know chief uh, people aides they were involved in the evasion of the sanctions. Uh, in those kind of cases, you could al always see uh, some relations, some like direct and uh, or indirect or illicit relations. Yeah. Uh, between uh, Erdogan's people and Iranian officials. Yeah, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Professor Halil Yanagin about Middle Eastern politics. I want to ask you um, a question after this, but just for people who are not familiar with it, I want to repeat this. Um, you and I both know, and I've read about your thoughts on this, that on September 27th of last year, Azerbaijan uh, attacked uh, Armenians of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, something that was kind of a proxy war of Erdogan on Armenia with um, helping Azerbaijan with uh, military, with um, weaponry, with financing, and also recruiting uh, mercenaries, Syrian mercenaries, Libyan, Pakistani, and all of that, and they 
they accomplished what they wanted to do. Um, they just decimated the area. It's lost of thousands of lives. My yeah. question to you is this, because I don't think that <clears throat> the world is blind to it. It's been well yeah. documented by human rights organizations, world leaders, uh, investigators, etc. And I want you to correct me or, or just add your thoughts after this. Is reason, uh, for the most part, uh, Azerbaijan, well, Azerbaijan's gotten away with it because of their oil and uh, Turkey being in NATO, but then also collectively the oil pipeline, which brings uh, Caspian oil into Europe, an investment yeah. of uh, billions and billions of dollars by European nations. So a lot of Council of Europe and uh, European Union members have sort of turned a blind eye um, and said, yeah. We, we just don't want to, you know, risk any anything there, as well as the fact that Turkey with uh, a population of 80 million is a huge market for uh, European goods. What can you add to yes. that? Uh, yes. So, um, yes, as an oil country, uh, Azerbaijan actually has learned a lot from uh, the Gulf countries, the Arab uh, oil uh, countries, and the way they... Uh, kind of both influence uh, in the Western world. Uh, they exactly copied them, they transferred that know-how, so to say, and then uh, they skillfully used that to buy influence and at least to buy their consent. So Turkey, uh, of course, uh, it doesn't have oil, but uh, Turkey also, uh, of course, have become like a model in, in that regard, because as you know, uh, during the last few years, Turkey showed its expansionism uh, in first in 2018 in Austrian uh, of Syria and the, went there, occupied uh, and ethnically cleansed the area from the Kurdish population. Can you, you saw no real reaction from the Western world, either uh, yep. the Europeans, either EU or the US. So the next time was 2019. So there was more reaction, uh, but the reaction was more about the uh, kind of the crossway, you know, Trump uh, let let you know Erdogan do that, and the discourse in the U.S. was, you know, Americans betrayed the Kurds because the Kurds uh, gained their kind of sympathy not because uh, they were being repressed by Turkey and Syria for many decades, but because they defeated ISIS. You know, the whole legitimacy, so to say, that they deserved support from the Western world was because they defeated. ISIS, and they have the Western world for that uh, interest, for that particular right. interest. But beyond that, it was as if, you know, like they did not deserve any kind of support, and Turkey needed to be supported because it was a NATO country. So you see that discourse occurring again and again, again and again in the European and American media, like as a NATO ally. So whatever you do, they would let you slide. And also, like Erdogan uh, has found out how things work. Uh, he's, he's been doing it very well. Like whenever there is an occupation that he intends to, then he goes to the European capitals and then he uh, makes certain trade deals and uses that uh, 80 million huge market uh, as a good leverage, as a good bargaining chip, uh, putting aside the other bargaining chip, uh, namely the Syrian refugees, mm -hmm. uh, who in the first place turned out to be refugees because of Turkey's Syrian policy, because Turkey tried to, you know, get involved in this 
in Syria and uh, helped arm uh, and uh, also foment the civil war in Syria. And as a result, uh, got some million refugees. And uh, now, like, uh, Turkey is also able to use those refugees as a bargaining chip. Um, and you could see, you know, Erdogan uh, has really uh, decoded how things work with the European countries and the U.S. and has been using it very well. And uh, in Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, this this was very well applied. And not just Azerbaijan uh, uh, using uh, exploitation of the oil money to buy influence, and we have seen a lot of reports about that, but also uh, with that war, Erdogan has used uh, what he developed uh, in the recent wars, like in first in 2019, Syrian war, then 2018 war, uh, and then in Libya, he used the same method. So namely, he has now uh, this huge army of drones, like, and drones, uh, the company is basically his son-in-law's company, Patrick Barakchar's company. Those Barakchar drones, they are doing the job on the air, and then uh, he's using Syrians, now like those Syrians, he's supposed mm-hmm. to be helping, right? Uh, he shows himself that way now. Uh, he turned them uh, into mercenaries, mm-hmm. meaning they're disposable because they are needy. Uh, they need you know, the, the money that they could give. And the Sadat, what uh, the, the company, the mercenary company, like the Wagner of Russians, like that company, is recruiting the Syrians uh, for this money. Uh, and against all the international laws, uh, they are being used as the disposable mercenaries. And, yeah, and- this, this has worked in in uh, Artsakh, uh, as, as yeah. we saw, and there was a huge uh, human loss, and there was no reason why the European powers and the U.S. Uh, would not uh, help negotiate a peace deal there, right? A peaceful deal. But they didn't do that. Uh, and when uh, Erdogan uh, and Azerbaijan struck that deal and used the mercenaries and now applied this new warfare method in Artsakh, they just uh, turned their back and then uh, they, you know, like uh, pretended as if nothing was happening there. Uh, and also, like you, you could see uh, by you know Turkish uh, sponsored functions or events or like uh, different uh, you know think tanks, you could see uh, this recurring discourse. You know, this is international recognized land of Azerbaijan. We are just taking it back. The war is a legitimate war, um, and putting aside you know all the uh, demands for peaceful negotiations. That could have happened, by the way, which was quite possible, but they did not do that. Well, I don't want to call it a war because it was such a one-sided thing. The assault on uh, Artsakh Armenians by Azerbaijan and Turkey could have stopped with a single phone call from Trump or Secretary uh, Pompeo at the time. But um, you touched on this, but not only Trump was backing uh, Erdogan, but you know they're pals, and Trump has interests in Turkey as two towers, and even when he was a candidate, he talked about his conflict of interest with Turkey. But of course, you know, for four years, Trump did what he wanted to do. <laughs> that wasn't the first or the only uh, illegal and uh, unethical things that he'd done. And uh, you touched on uh, Turkey being in Syria. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Professor Halil Yanagin about Middle Eastern politics. The, yes. I guess the good thing, I don't know if we can call it good because war was involved, is Turkey lost in Syria. 
despite all of its efforts. Do you not agree? Uh, Turkey, uh, like if you look at where Turkey was 10 years ago and where Turkey is now, you could say uh, Turkey maybe did not achieve its goals in Syria, which was a goal shared by also NATO countries, uh, by the way, uh, and Saudis. Uh, they could not topple uh, Assad from Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you look at uh, where Turkey was 10 years ago and now, you could see Turkey gained uh, territories. Turkey occupied territories, basically. Yeah. Um, now, like nobody knows uh, when they will leave. And even uh, more significantly, Turkey did the ethnic cleansing yes. uh, in Kurdish populated lands yes. in northern Syria and nor- northwest Syria, mm-hmm. in Afrin and now like in yeah. Tel Aviv and other places. I suppose and I'm Turkey just. Turkey created new refugees yeah. and new displacement. And this also means this. So there was a continuity of uh, populations, Kurdish populations, uh, between Turkey and Syria. Now they could effectively uh, create a buffer zone between the Kurdish people in Syria and in Turkey. So which is, again, one of the... uh, Divide them, essentially divide them. And by the way, when I said said Turkey didn't uh, ultimately win, I meant toppling Assad. That's it, which I think... Yeah, no, uh, on on that, yes. Yeah. They they did not topple Assad, but uh, also, you know, like you you could see uh, a number of uh, even worse uh, outcomes for the region, for the regional peace. One... Uh, the Armenian genocide survivors who end up in Syria, northern Syria, mm-hmm. now they had to go through right, uh, a second displacement. Yeah. Uh, hundred years later, yeah. like from the same perpetrator. That is one. And second, over there in uh, Syria, uh, you could see like a new warfare uh, now wreaking havoc among uh, among them and like Syrian mercenaries. So. Uh, like it is uh, more apt to ask the Armenians there. However, we could, you know, as well, yes, how they feel. You know, Syria was somewhere uh, that hosted them like, uh, after they survived the genocide in Turkey, right? Yeah. And then the same Syrians now, uh, they went to Azerbaijan to kill them. So I think the I think I can answer that for Syrians. you. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't speak for all Armenians, nor would I want to. I think when you ask Armenians about the the Arab slash Middle Eastern world, what you will hear all, almost all the time is this, that overwhelmingly Arabs and Middle Easterns were very welcoming and generous to Armenians after the genocide. They welcomed them to their countries. Uh, would that be Syria, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Iran, uh, other parts of the region? You know, there, there's always tensions. There's always the religion factor, which I think some people are afraid to talk about, but it is a factor that comes up. Um, and I think uh, in terms of the mercenaries, I think they're the much smaller minority than the majority of Syrians. Um, yes. I don't think that, again, um, maybe someone can correct me, I don't think that Armenians blame the Syrians per se, um, they blame they blame Erdogan for doing that uh, for and yes. and also from Pakistan, which makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, I understand that these are people who are destitute and they need the money and they're willing to you know be in an army for money and kill people, 
But um, so much of it I don't understand. But what I wanted to ask you is this, because it is actually a, a mystery to me. Is Europe intimidated or threatened by this large mercenary army that everyone now has in his disposal, sort of living throughout southeast uh, Turkey and parts of Syria that he can use in other parts of the world like he did with Artsakh. Are Europeans alarmed by that? Yeah, I think they are alarmed, but uh, like it is hard to tell like uh, why they are watching this whole new development. But th- there are like a number of internal issues uh, in the EU. They are, uh, in many ways, in terms of foreign policy, quite dysfunctional. They can get together and decide on a certain consistent policy as the EU, and each national uh, government tries to pursue different uh, interests. And Germany is quite significant in that sense. Actually, uh, Merkel, like, even though she's highly praised mm-hmm. by many people for many policies, she is the one uh, who pursued this consistent uh, appeasement policy towards Erdogan for some reason. Normally, you would not... Uh, expect Germany uh, or any other European country to be so appealing uh, to Turkey's violation of all the norms that they are supposedly upholding. What we see here, uh, those countries simply not using the bargaining chips that they have. So it is a wonder, you know, why are you, like as the stronger party, why are you not using the political power you have as effectively as a much weaker power, uh, i.e. Turkey. Uh, that is quite well, I think in Germany's case, I think some of it has to do with um, that Germany has a very large uh, Turkish population. It's a voting bloc. Um, so I think politicians um, would want to appease and appeal to them. I think that could be a part of it. Um, although, you know, like yourself and many other... Um, academics and think tanks and and intellectuals of Turkish descent, I think it's a disservice to think that everyone is <laughs> thinks the same way that Erdogan. And certainly, this is not the case because even as we see in Turkey, there's there's a big, you know, there's a big uh, opposition to Erdogan and what he's doing, especially with uh, the rights of uh, journalism and press and. Uh, LGBTQ and uh, etc. Um, so a lot of European countries have, I think, Europe in general disappointed Armenians. Um, I think Armenians thought that after the Armenian genocide and lessons learned, and uh, that there would be more of an intervention, but uh, it was very little, if any. And I think the strongest came from France, and even that, uh, Macron didn't go all the way. Uh, certainly Germany yeah. played very safe. Uh, Britain, I think Britain's case, oil, and uh, British Petroleum's interests in Azerbaijani oil had a lot to do with it. But then the pipeline also helps Germany and Italy and uh, other nations, even France. Yeah. So before we go, because uh, we're running out of time, I want you and I could talk for hours because... Uh, your, your wealth of information. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Professor Halil Yanigan about Middle Eastern politics. 
But I do want to ask you, uh, from your perspective, in terms of going forward for Armenians of Artsakh and just Armenia, and the fact that they're dealing with two superpowers on both sides, what do you think Armenians should do that they're not doing? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I can't uh, tell. Like Armenians, of course, you know, as uh, coming from Turkey, being of Turkish origin, although, you know, like as many Turks, I can't also know like my exact, you know, ethnic origins or like whether or if, you know, I was also assimilated, you know, centuries before uh, as being, you know, like, uh, coming from an Armenian or I, I, I you could be a cousin that. <laughs> but but yeah um, what what I uh, can say uh, of course you no know, there's a lot more to do about uh, publicizing like what uh, has been going on uh, to let more people know uh, and Armenians are uh, not uh, like a weak community of course over here uh in in california especially where i used to live there are still lots of uh untapped uh, resources to use to reach out to mainstream uh americans uh i cannot tell like uh it is different from the way it works uh among the muslim uh minorities in the in in the us or elsewhere uh that there is a certain uh sense of uh, religious fraternity, uh, religious solidarity that you see doesn't exist among Christians that much. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is interesting observation that I have been making. Yes, and that's also a really good see, point. For instance, uh, yeah, back in the day, uh, like when you could see uh, the American Muslim minority uh, was much more supportive of Armenians, even like in terms of genocide. Uh, I have uh, just, for instance, uh, made a short research about some of the Muslim organizations, when they were acting themselves, they were supportive of Armenian uh, claims about Armenian calls about the genocide and uh, the rectification uh, of the wrongs of the last century. Uh, But they even changed their position uh, as a result of Turkey's outreach campaigns. And Turkey is now trying to buy them off one by one, all these Muslim organizations, there are some resistance, there is some resistance, but still, you could see that, uh, uh, like, many of them are now, like, changing sides one by one, uh, and they have even issued, right, uh, some some statements that support Turkish claims, like, exactly using Turkish government's talking points about yeah. uh, Armenia or the genocide, uh, meaning, you know, let's leave this to historians, you know. Uh, you could see that, you know, some Muslim organizations are repeating. Yeah. Uh, well, historians that. historians so, have overwhelmingly determined it was genocide. Yeah. Actually, you know, if you look at historians, uh, if they are not uh, paid by Turkish government or if they are not, you know, openly supportive uh, of Turkish government by, you know, all means, they, uh, if you look at the, you know, record uh, in, in, in terms of the history, uh, the history departments, you know, all over the world, no, this is a near consensus that you know you should call this genocide. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, this is like all out there. You know, uh, there is not an honest historian out there. You know, who would uh, not call this a genocide while calling other acts of genocide. You no, know, if you call Srebrenica, right? You no, know, just thirteen thousand you know, male people in Bosnia a genocide. 
how can you not call? Like, I'm in genocide, genocide. Yeah. So out there, and it is a consensus among, yeah. um, uh, among the historians. Uh, so, like, by that, they just mean you, know, you should also, like, include our, you know, paid historians or, like, our, mm. uh, th- that we sponsor uh, in your, you know, discussions. And this is not a matter of politics, you know, just depoliticizing a very political issue. Yeah, because it's um, inconvenient. Anyways, it's no, inconvenient for no. him. It's inconvenient yes, I for think, him. Look, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I'm meaning it's really, uh, not, not, not my place to say, uh, but, you know, I wish, you know, uh, I could see a more active uh, effort on the part of Armenians to, you know, like, uh, uh, hold, you know, people to account, you know, when they uh, just fight and uh, support uh, Turkish claims uh, right after, you know, Turkey is now reaching out to, uh, the community is over here and stepping up its efforts. And you yeah. could see that with new organizations and with Erdogan's you know, new stash, you know, lots of money now is being poured over. Yeah, Aliyev uh, too, with his caviar, caviar diplomacy, he's been uh, whining and dining uh, European elected officials and uh, doing all kinds of yes. uh, lobbying. They just... Uh, in London, uh, Azerbaijan just started a campaign. <laughs> it's a print poster campaign in all the uh, subway stations. Uh, one of them says that we're a multicultural uh, nation, uh, which is hilarious. And the other one is a, a picture of Darivank. Of course, Aliyev and, and Azerbaijan's whole claims that all these Armenian monasteries and churches, they go back to... 4th, 5th, 6th century with scriptures, yes. Armenian scriptures on them. They're scraping them off and then calling them Albanians, which is just... Yes, yes, you know, I, I know absurd. that, yeah. I, uh, yeah, they, we can't say, actually, uh, they have excelled the art of propaganda. Like, they, they have already excelled the art of propaganda in their own country, right, in Turkey and Azerbaijan, with their autocratic governments. Now, they are uh, moving uh, that whole expertise over to Europe and the U.S. You know, this is what they are trying to do now. So they, they have seen now that like, they could manipulate all the minds and hearts of people in their own countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are now trying that, uh, that uh, expertise uh, over the American people and the European people. Yeah. Um, Hal, it's been a pleasure. Um, I can't believe we've uh, run out of time. So it feels like we spoke for two minutes. I would love to have you back again. Thank you for being Thank on the so show. Thank you so much. Anytime. Is there My anything pleasure. you'd like to add um, that I didn't cover or ask you? Uh, let's uh, just continue like, to demand peace. You know, this is not about the analysis, but this is about you know, good wishes uh, to peace uh, between uh, the peoples. And we really need to uh, remember. And I, I can say now like in Turkey, there are more and more people uh, who are willing to face that, that fact, that uh, fact of one century ago and do something about that. Uh, I'm not alone here. I'm not like a loner, uh, but there are many people like like me in Turkey. Yes, of course. And we are trying to raise our voice. And our struggle against Erdogan government now also includes this agenda. And that is why they are so much repressing us to like uh, to silence us because we now uh, speak up against Armenian genocide as well. All right. Thank you so much. Solidarity, solidarity is what, what we all need. Indeed. Thank you again. Um, totally appreciate it. Until next so time. Thank you so much. That was Professor Halil Yenigin, uh, who is an expert in Middle Eastern politics. 
thank you so much, Professor, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic uh, this morning. Appreciate your time. The Blunt Post with Vic. I have three quotes for you uh, regarding the recent shooting in Atlanta, uh, hate crimes against the Asian American community. The first one is from President uh, Biden, who said, this afternoon, Vice President Harris and I are meeting with Asian American leaders in Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to discuss the ongoing attacks against the community and how we move forward. It's up to all of us to root out racism and give hate no safe harbor in America. Congressman Ted Lieu said, The former president used racist phrases like Kung Flu. That's one reason he lost. The Asian American community, which more than doubled since 2000, voted overwhelmingly for Biden. AAPI voters are going to fight back against racists. The last quote uh, is from Congresswoman Judy Chu. She said, We were shocked and heartbroken when we heard about the deaths of these eight people, six of them being Asian women. We think that this is the combination of a whole year's worth of hate stoked by xenophobia of Donald Trump. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.